Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, our collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Arva Hansen. I'm a researcher at Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo, and I'm a leader of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. And I'm here today with Dennis Arnold, a geographical political economist from the University of Amsterdam, and Thomas Setre Jakobsen, a geographer affiliated with the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. They both have long experience doing research on labor and migration in Asia. Dennis in Southeast Asia, including in Cambodia, Myanmar, Thailand, and Vietnam, and Thomas in China. Today, they join us to help us understand precarious labor in Asia, focusing particularly on the quite different cases of China and Cambodia. We will give particular attention to the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on migrant workers. Welcome, Dennis and Thomas, and thank you for taking the time to join us from Amsterdam and Trondheim. So let's start with some of the basics here. Creating jobs and providing decent employment is central to global development agendas. Indeed, Sustainable Development Goal 8 targets nothing less than decent work for all by 2030. Yet the precarization of work is seen as a defining feature of late capitalism. Can you help us understand what this means and what it means in China and Cambodia? Thomas, let's start in China. Well, let's begin with some basic framework for understanding precarization in China. There are about 280 million rural migrant workers in China people who have left the countryside to work in more urban areas or in other industries located closer to the countryside, but still urban or wage work. And in total, there are about 770 million workers in China. So 280 million workers is quite a huge number. And of the 770 million workers, there are quite a few working in rural areas with farm work. So to say something about precarious work in China, A lot has been done uh, in terms of legal measures to secure that work in urban areas is not precarious, that people have a working contract, that they have uh, set working hours, maternity leave, vacation, and and so forth. However, uh, compliance is very low, so a lot of workers basically don't have a working contract, they don't have a set working hour, and so forth. So it's a lot of precarious or insecure work in urban areas. Rural migrant workers typically find work in urban industries. You know, the face of the rural migrant workforce in China are these workers in the garment industries or the apparel industries working along the assembly lines. And uh, they constitute a major productive force in China and are about 30% of the total urban or rural migrant worker demographic. However, a lot of workers are also working in other uh, more small-scale petty commodity workplaces uh, where there are few workers, there is an owner with small-scale capital involved. These are typical restaurants, hair saloons, and other service industries which are important in servicing the urban communities. And there you will typically find a lot of rural migrant workers working in quite difficult situations. What is interesting, I mean, just to give a backdrop of the Chinese case, is to know that this 
rural migrant workers, when they enter the city, they normally don't have a legal status in urban areas, meaning their government registration is in rural areas where they are born and they have been socialized and then grew up before moving to the city. So in terms of social protection, it's difficult for them to access it in the city. And here I'm thinking of things like unemployment insurance. I'm thinking of healthcare and if you, if you get pregnant, maternity healthcare and, and so forth. But also for uh, the children of migrant workers, the case often that they leave their children back in the villages when they move to the city because urban governments have ways to make these parents pay extra fees and the school, they have these separate schools for migrant worker children, which are very poor standard and so forth. So there's a lot of barriers to bringing children to the city. And there is also another barrier, which is the high costs of living in urban areas. So this kind of hukou system, it's called in China, where workers are registered in their place of birth, makes a difference to the precarious nature of uh, work for the rural migrant workers, who then are less able to access urban public goods, so to speak. So this also means that these workers are to a large extent, and this is what I've been focusing on a lot in my work, reliant upon agriculture and rural land for survival. Particularly if you look at people's trajectory over time, you will see that whenever they get sick or unemployed or pregnant, they return to the village, to their hometown to recuperate or to live off the land for some time. And just to wrap up this introduction, I think it's also important to say something briefly about then changes in land and agricultural relations during the last decade or so in China, as these rural migrant workers are so dependent upon land for their long-term survival and social protection. During the last decade or so, since largely around 2008, uh, the Chinese government has tried to make land in rural areas switch hands more easily. There's no full-scale privatization going on, but it's easier now to rent land from neighbors and also for external parties like these larger agribusinesses or mid-scale, I would say, entrepreneurs to lease land from farmers or landholders in rural areas. So there is a kind of scaling up of agriculture going on, which is very much promoted in rural development policies in China. So this makes, in a way, people more dependent upon wage work. Another force which is making people more dependent upon wage work is the fact that a lot of land has been expropriated and privatized in this more large-scale construction projects going on, particularly in the outskirts of cities. And so a lot of farmers or former farmers have lost their land and became full-scale workers or proletarianized forcefully, you can say. So in a way, just to sum up this introduction, the urban labor market becomes more important for the social reproduction of these workers. So this precarious nature of the work really impinges upon their situation. I'm not saying workers are powerless, but I'm saying that due to the weak implementation of the legal code and the weak or lack of, I would say, to some extent, an active community among 
workers in urban areas, partly because of this circular rural urban uh, migration of these workers, and also because of the hookah system. It's very difficult for workers to become this very strong collective force and change the broad-scale working conditions in China. Thank you very much for that excellent overview, Thomas. So Dennis, what about you? What does precarious work mean to you and how does it resonate with the research that you've been doing on migrant workers in Cambodia? Sure. First of all, I'd like to talk about Cambodia's position, so to speak, in the global division of labor. It's not an advantageous position. It's a position of structural weakness. Cambodia is a very small country in comparison to China, the population of only 15 million. It was only in the early 1990s that Cambodia emerged from over two decades of conflict, first pulled into the U.S. wars in Indochina, of course, and leading to the Khmer Rouge uh, takeover of the country, which is a very familiar story. But essentially, in the 1990s, Cambodia emerged with a eviscerated state and an economy that was in shambles. So it really started from a poor starting point, uh, shall we say. Going forward to today, the country still lacks economic diversification. There are four so-called economic growth pillars in the country, which are construction, agro-industry, tourism, and garments. We'll come back to you later on with the COVID discussion. Two of them are really quite uh, devastated for over a year. And it's a rapidly urbanizing economy similar to China. There have been very big changes in terms of land tenure and ownership and a lot of both landless people and more so land poor people migrating to urban areas, but also migrating internationally, especially to Thailand. Across the board, I would say that work is quite precarious in this context. Importantly, that uh, there are limited opportunities, I would say, for Cambodia to upgrade, so to speak, in its position in the global economy. Basically, the country really struggles to maintain a position in lower value-added segments of the global apparel industry. For example, there is uh, really no significant diversification in terms of industry going on into electronics or auto or other sectors of that sort, which you find in Vietnam, of course. So zooming in a bit more to the garment sector, which is the sector I know the most. It's the one I've been studying for quite some time. Work in this sector is, it remains highly precarious. There have been very significant wage increases over the past seven, eight years. And these were led by workers' protests and struggles. And, and these were a victory for, for Cambodia's labor movement. But these wages started from an exceptionally low starting point. So they're basically just getting back to where it should have been to adjust to inflation over the 10-year period or so despite these wage increases, they're still very far removed from the uh, living wage. So garment work is defined, the general parameters of it. It's a feminized industry in Cambodia as it is globally. So roughly 85, 90% of the workers in the sector are female. There's about 900,000 employed in the sector. 90 plus percent, I would say, or others have said, are migrants from rural areas, uh, very Typical partial proletarians got one foot in the land and one foot in the urban areas. And really important in the context of Cambodia, and it's, I think, quite similar in Vietnam and other countries 
in the region is that uh, work in industry in the urban or peri-urban industrial zones uh, remains highly precarious in terms of pay and, and the duration that one may expect to, to be able to work in this sector. So this means that individuals and, and families are not in a position to fully let go of the land. They need to hold on to land a few hectares even as a, a form of individual or family-oriented social this is their form of social insurance, so to speak. At the same time, the land holdings are so small that uh, families are not able to make a sufficient living from the land. So they're stuck in neither one or the other and are, are trying to maintain both precarious work in urban areas as well as uh, precarious small-scale land holdings in rural areas. And it's a cycle that uh, few are able to get out of. And what you find increasingly in Cambodia is debt that has really made a huge presence throughout the country. According to many sources, Cambodia is the country with the highest penetration of microfinance in the world. Average individual amounts of debt are astronomical in relation to the kinds of wages that people are making. So in relation to this precarious land holdings and precarious forms of work that people have, they're increasingly taking out loans in order to subsidize effectively their participation in the labor market or for schooling, healthcare, and various other things of that sort. Thank you very much, Dennis, for that excellent overview. Now, as you touched upon, the COVID-19 pandemic obviously had severe impacts on the lives and livelihoods of workers around the world, really. In Asia, the hardships of the many Indian migrant workers who walked a long way home after lockdown was imposed in the country, gave the topic some brief international attention. Relatively little attention has been given to the situation of workers in East and Southeast Asia during the pandemic. Now, how has the pandemic influenced their lives and how do they cope during lockdown? Thomas, let's start in China again. Well, regarding the lockdown, I think it's interesting to take the Chinese particulars into consideration because the lockdown started around the Chinese New Year celebrations around January 2020. And a lot of rural migrant workers, we focus on that population, had gone home to their villages to celebrate. And uh, what's interesting about the situation or the impact of the COVID is that a lot of people then chose or could not return to their workplaces in more urban areas. So again, this kind of demonstrates the importance of this situation for most of the rural migrant workers, one foot on the land and one in the city. So a lot of them didn't receive their wages or didn't have any yeah, wage work to fall back upon. So a lot of them went unemployed and returned to the land. And similarly to the situation in Cambodia, in the area where I've been doing most work in southwestern China, the situation for most rural households is that they have very small plots of land and they are basically not able to live off the land, so to speak, alone. So they are in need of these wage working opportunities. But to say a bit more about which groups were most affected, it's of course a lot of the service economy workers who deliver food, who are working in food production and other services, hairdressers and beautification saloons and all that kind of small-scale wage work, which is in urban areas. And a lot of that was closed down, particularly to begin with. As the pandemic and the response to it moved on, 
it of course also hit the more central parts of the economy, the manufacturing sector, where a lot of workers lost their jobs as global demand started slumping. And a lot of these workers also then returned home to their villages. And in a way, the situation is similar to what happened in 2008 when you had the financial crash. A lot of workers returning home. Back then, it was 20 million migrant workers who returned home. I have to say, it's quite uh, difficult to get a very, very good overview of uh, what's going on. It's easier to say something about uh, what kind of policies the Chinese government is trying to implement to combat the more large-scale unemployment it's witnessing. And they have been rolling out this vocational training programs, which they were big on also before the pandemic, where workers are trained to learn and master a profession. And they also opened up more education opportunities. So there's more people in higher education. But yeah, these possibilities are mainly not open for rural migrant workers who are not able to afford or don't have the urban HUCO registration, which I mentioned, which is often a requirement for these programs. So yeah, it's difficult to say more than that uh, without getting on thin ice, but it's definitely a kind of situation that illustrates, again, this importance of rural-urban mobility and the reliance that so many urban workers have on rural land for their long-term social protection. I think it's a kind of opens up a rift in the normalcy of cariousness in that sense. It, it shows kind of this situation very starkly. I'll leave it there. Thank you for these insights, Thomas. Now, Dennis, if you've heard little about the situation of workers in China during the pandemic, we've heard close to nothing about the situation for workers in Cambodia, or that is the rest of us at least. I know you've heard quite a bit. So what can you tell us about the situation in Cambodia? Well, first of all, I'll qualify this. I've, I've not been to Cambodia throughout the pandemic. I've not left Amsterdam. In fact, it's been about two years since I was there. So there are limitations to what I know, of course. About the situation there, I did do a desk-based study for a Dutch trade union, the CNB, which was published earlier this year. So in that process, I was in touch with a lot of stakeholders from the trade unions, the Employers Association, ILO, and others of that sort. So much of the knowledge I have is from that and then other media reports and kind of informal conversations with the colleagues there. So what I can say very briefly in terms of the COVID impacts, and in 2020, there were a very limited number of cases in Cambodia. So there weren't widespread lockdowns that changed this year, but in 2020, that wasn't the case. But certain sectors of the economy were very much uh, impacted. Tourism, I mentioned earlier, is essential to the Cambodian economy. And yeah, of course, there were no tourists going to Cambodia throughout the pandemic. So that had a massive uh, impacts on thousands of workers' livelihoods. Garment manufacturing, which is the one that I studied, was impacted, not as dramatically as we may have expected in terms of the level of production and export. The country definitely took a hit on the whole due to decreased demand from European and North American markets, but it wasn't as dramatic as we could have expected. Still, if we look at it in terms of precarity and the livelihoods of workers, it had uh, dramatic consequences, even these uh, relatively minor decreases in exports. It meant that some factories were closed for a few weeks here and there, some closed permanently, not a huge number of them. 
more significantly, from what I understand, uh, slowdowns, um, a fewer number of orders. So workers doing eight hours a day rather than 10 or 12, which is the norm. And those overtime hours are really essential. It's structured into the wage for them to be able to get by. They have to be working really excessive amounts of overtime, which is another story. But anyway, COVID impacted workers' capacity to do that. And so in the process, basically, a lot of workers were short on money, taking out increasing numbers of loans, as I mentioned before, workers starting to sacrifice efficiently nutritious food, which was a practice uh, that was very common around 2010, 2013, uh, before there were wage increases, which I mentioned before. So the impacts have been widespread in 2020 in those terms. At the factory floor, from what I understand, issues around collective bargaining or sufficiently transparent wage payments and maternity leave and these kinds of issues, which are always an uphill battle in a context like Cambodia, have really been put to the side. And it's just about, do we have work or don't we have work? And so people are focusing on really much more basic survival kinds of issues and these others, which are critical of course, get pushed to the side for the moment. So that's one major issue, and that may have lasting effects. It may take a long time in order to get those issues back onto the agenda. 2021, the situation has changed for the worse in terms of COVID. There have been outbreaks in April and in May and so-called red zones. So many parts of Phnom Penh and other areas have been in a complete lockdown. This led to many factory closures. And there have been some ad hoc state-led initiatives uh, to help people out during this time, like a partial wage subsidy for Garment to select other formal sector workers in the country, of which there are few. The garment industry is really by far the biggest formal sector employer in the country. There have also been monthly cash transfers to the so-called identified poor. These are poorest of the poor not somebody who is employed. Somebody who's employed is not in that category. And more recently, some one-off cash transfers and food provisions and things of that sort in urban areas. But uh, from what I understand, these have been ad hoc and sufficient. And again, people are sacrificing sufficiently nutritious food and, and all kinds of devastating consequences. So the current phase of the pandemic is wreaking much more havoc, I would say. And that's sort of where things are at the moment. Cambodia, is, it does have a vaccination program and is rolling it out. As I understand, about 15% of the population have been vaccinated. And that's relatively high. If you think Japan is only at, I think, 13% or something like that, if I've got the, the numbers right. And interestingly, this is because of the close geopolitical relations with China. Cambodia is one of China's key geopolitical allies in the Southeast Asia region. And so you see this vaccine diplomacy uh, playing out in the case of Cambodian relations with China. Thank you very much, Dennis. Now, I'm learning a lot from listening to both of you. And my final questions are rather big. If we go back to the beginning, when I said that we're supposed just nine years from now to have decent work for all. If you are to achieve the sustainable development goals. Now, what do you think these cases, China and Cambodia, tell us about labor and work in late capitalism? And what kind of long term impacts do you think the pandemic will have? What are the prospects for decent work in these countries? 
Thomas, let's start with you. It's a good question and something to ponder upon for the coming years, I'm sure. I guess I'm not very optimistic regarding the goal of getting to those 20, 30 goals. Particularly, I think the pandemic and things that Dennis touched upon regarding issues that were important for workers, including maternity leave and paid vacation and stuff like that, have kind of fallen down the list of priorities. So, yeah, I'm not that optimistic. I think it's interesting if you look at the more long-term developments in China to think about labor demand and labor supply and what this does to precarious work. Because what you have seen since 2008, you have seen when you had the financial crisis that hit China then in the autumn of 2008, you saw that a lot of workers became unemployed, returned back to their villages. And there was also some labor militancy in the years coming afterwards where workers demanded high wages particularly. And uh, actually in the industry, they had a shortage of labor and they had quite uh, substantial wage increases after 2012 or 2013. But what's going on then is you have more and more automation and uh, workers being made redundant by machine. And again, we don't have the full image there. But my worry is that if we do this and at the same time, people lose their access to land, which I mentioned earlier, a lot of farmers have lost their access to land. You will see more and more difficult situations arising for these workers. So I guess that's that. But of course, I'm always hoping and looking for glimmers of collective action. And what we have seen during the pandemic is that and this is quite interesting and novel in the Chinese case, at least, is that small-scale business owners and migrant workers have joined forces to protest the government and local landlords and calling for rent cuts. So they want to get their accommodation at a lower price. And this is, of course, related to the fact that they are short on money and that the money supply and the wages are more disconnected and not so easily to access. So this is some glimmer of hope, maybe small-scale Business owners and migrant workers will, at least in urban areas, more often in the future join forces. We'll see. It's, it's an interesting landscape to, to follow. Thank you very much, Thomas. And thank you also for giving us some glimmer of hope in the end there. Dennis, any glimmers of hope in Cambodia? So yeah, to address that, first I want to go back to where I started in terms of recognizing and coming to terms with Cambodia's structural disadvantage in the global economy. There's really limited opportunities for the country to develop economically, socioeconomically, difficult to move beyond a dependence on low-wage garment assembly and tourism and other sectors of that sort to generate jobs in the country. And we see very clearly that these are low-wage, precarious jobs. So it's difficult to get out of that situation. If we look at sectors like garments, you know, it's a situation in which if we look at this in prominent discourses in Europe, which have clearly traveled to Cambodia and other contexts, you mentioned uh, decent work, I think, and along with decent work is the concept or practice of social dialogue, which is a central pillar across Europe these days. So these concepts are meant to bring together so-called social partners in contexts like Cambodia 
And in the garment industry, the social partners being well workers and their representative trade unions, a paternalistic, neoliberal, violent, neoliberal, authoritarian state, you know, led by a prime minister, Ming Sen, who's been in power for a very long time. I think the third or fourth longest serving prime minister in the world. There's effectively no opposition in the country any longer. It's very clearly an electoral authoritarian state. And garment factory owners, managers who are making money, of course, that's why they're still in business, but they're servicing the lower nodes of the global apparel industry. And so effectively, these so-called social partners are meant to come around and have discussions around the way in which value or profits are shared. And this is the underlying notion from my perspective of decent work and what it is really contingent upon this notion of social dialogue and social partners, but it really flattens disparity in, in power between these different stakeholders, specifically in the context of Cambodia. And it also flattens disparities in the accumulation of wealth in the global economy more generally. Why is it that Cambodia is stuck servicing Europeans' desire for cheap t-shirts and cheap blue jeans and things of this sort. So it's a new form of dependency if we think of it in the global division of labor. And it's an institutional context in Cambodia in which it's extremely difficult for these actors to try to come together in any sort of harmonious way, as these concepts would describe. To really complicate things in the context of Cambodia, you know, workers, representative, the trade union, are prone to co-optation from the government, from the ruling government. They're prone to co-optation from employers. There are some very good independent unions in the country who are genuinely struggling on their members and workers' behalf, but they've really become the minority over the years. And it's these uh, pro-party unions or pro-capital unions who have the majority at the moment. So this is another impediment to workers being able to advance their interests institutionally. So some years pass, what you get is increasing scale and intensity of strikes from 2010 to 2014, roughly. So workers are really taking things into their own hands. Since then, the Cambodian state has cracked down very hard. They cracked down immediately at those protests with the army stepping in and shooting and killing multiple workers, shooting them with AK-47s. These are heavily armed uh, military units going into industrial zones to put down a protest. Since then, workers have really not been able to strike. And this has long been the most powerful tool at workers' disposal in a context like Cambodia's is the strike. So that's effectively been taken away. So what limited power workers have enjoyed in a sector like garment has really been transformed to their disadvantage. So I'm sorry to paint such a bleak picture, but perhaps next time you can bring somebody else from one of the Cambodian unions and maybe some workers themselves, and they may have something better to say than me. But sitting here in Amsterdam, it's hard to paint a rosy picture on these things. But uh, I've tried to point out that there have been multiple instances in the past when workers and independent unions have struggled and gone on strike and it paid off and there have been improvements. So let's hope that another cycle of struggle comes back in the short term. 
Thank you, Dennis. We'll have to end this highly interesting and important conversation here. Thank you both for sharing these insights with us. Dennis Arnold and Thomas Satriakobsen, thank you for joining us and the best of luck with your important work. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk about China. My name is Arvo Hansen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.